Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore humility as a spiritual practice. With me is Jason Gregory, who is an author and speaker on esoteric subjects, a student of the world's perennial mystical traditions, and author of The Science and Practice of Humility. Welcome, Jason. It's a pleasure to be on, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be with you. You've traveled all over the world. You've studied spiritual traditions uh, of, of a wide variety, and you found that there's a common element that seems to run through all authentic spiritual traditions. Well, this is some, this is knowledge that's been around for a long time, I guess, the perennial thread that we find in all traditions. But one of the aspects that I focus on in my book is this idea that the masters of all of these traditions, whether that be Buddhism, Hinduism, Gnosticism, Hermeticism, or, or what have you, there's this science of humility that a lot of them live by. And this is a, more of a way of life as opposed to, you know, the Western idea that we think about enlightenment as a as a goal or as something to achieve. Mm-hmm. They sort of see it as a way of life, a pr- way of life, a process that um, you kind of think about. You know, you think about a dance. What's more important, getting to the end of the dance or enjoying the dance? And this is kind of their process. But the thing is that. You know, the East especially, they don't think in terms of um, striving or achieving goals or success. So they think in, in the sense of um, moving in the moment mm-hmm. with the process of life and how that, how that unfolds. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the common thread that I found that this, this aspect, this, hum- this humility, which uh, a master embodies and ev- evokes actually, is something common in all traditions. Mm-hmm. And you know, to explain that a little bit better, when you think about um, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching, for example, yes. he uses a lot of analogies with water. Mm-hmm. So he says that water seeks the, the lowest places in nature, but paradoxically is the most powerful force in nature. Mm-hmm. So that's more of an analogy for how we are psychologically. So when we begin to refrain from our opinions and in, in Lao Tzu's sense, when we begin to blunt our sharpness, so have opinions, uh, rigid opinions about things and people and so forth and so on, we come into this greater power that, you know, we can give it a name, we can call it God or you can call it infinity or whatever you want to call it, but we won't give it a name. We'll, we'll just say you, you come into accord or resonance with this higher power, whatever it is, mm-hmm. from living that that way. And, and mm-hmm. that's what that was one aspect of what Lao Tzu yeah. Himself and, and most other Taoist practitioners, and, and also Buddhist and Hindu and Gnostic and Hermetic, they advocated this way of life. That um, if you come into accord with that, then you know you will, in a sense, bring more peace to the world from finding yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, it strikes me that there's a paradox at the yeah. heart yeah. of of all of this. I know, for example, in your writings, you often refer to uh, the snares of the ego as being something really horrible, something, I think you even use the word filthy, yeah. that, that we can fall into. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's, um, Sounds very judgmental in a way. <laughs> well, it does, it does. Um, but it, it's not meant to be seen that way also, mm-hmm. you know. it's um, Again, the ego or our personality or our persona system um, can 
um, help us evolve and learn certain things about ourselves, but it also can um, thwart all of our attempts at trying to know at the deeper essence of ourselves. Like mm-hmm. um, we see this in modern day, where most people are stuck to their identity and their belief in themselves. So I sort of say to people that it's not really the ego that's the problem. It's more so the belief in it, the, mm-hmm. the, the rigid belief in that I am Jason Gregory or you are Jeffrey Mishlove and anything outside of that is not welcome. So mm-hmm. um, we, in, in a sense, because we act from that way, we begin to isolate ourselves from the rest of humanity and, and the world in general. So I see, I see that, that as one of the primary problems that we all have as a species because – Understanding when we dissolve the ego or not – well, when we reduce or, or refine our consciousness mm-hmm. from having the tendencies of the personality, mm-hmm. then um, we begin to embrace the totality of, of existence much more mm-hmm. as opposed to being self-interested and keeping it all about yourself. You know, I had a mentor, Arthur Young, and he was known for saying that it's no good to sacrifice your ego on the altar of spirituality if you haven't developed an ego worthy of being sacrificed. Well, that's a great saying. It's, mm-hmm. it's um, well, I guess he's right in some sense. If uh, again, in a lot of cultures, if you haven't developed in, in a lot of cultures around the world, some of them don't have a rigid um, persona system mm-hmm. as well. Like, so if you look at, um, for example, India and China, when mm-hmm. you look at the oldest systems of the Hindu caste and also Confucianism, yeah. the whole idea of their systems was to um, bring you into the world yes. with, without the sense of self-interest, mm-hmm. bringing you more into the sense of the collective perspective. So right. you would still have the sense of the identity, but it's not as strong as it would be, say, in the West. Where we're, we're very individualistic. We're very individualistic. Yes. So this is... And you can talk about this culturally, environmentally, however, how we have evolved. Yes. So when you look at for example, if you look at Greece and China at around the same time of, of 2000 BC, um, when you look at the environmental factors of those times, in Greece you had much smaller communities mm-hmm. that um, you know, hunting, herding and fishing were the primary um, jobs, the primary mm-hmm. source of labor and nourishment. So it was more geared towards smaller communities, more individualistic. When you have a look over in China, there's a focus on massive irrigation systems because we need that. They needed mm-hmm. that for um, rice cultivation. Mm-hmm. And as you know, and as we all know, with rice cultivation, you and I can't do it on our own. We need it's it's intense labor. So from right. from that perspective, mm-hmm. um, they developed naturally, organically, a more collective system um, geared more towards ha- uh, social harmony, mm-hmm. cultural harmony. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not to say that the, what the West did was wrong. I mean, cause that was naturally how we evolved, but, um, what we've realized, I, I guess, over evolution is that, um, to be focused primarily on the individualistic perspective doesn't really help humanity at, at, at all. I mean, in, in, in its totality. Well, you talk about an interesting dynamic, Jason, between the warrior and the sage. And, yeah. and if I understand your writing, you suggest we all have within us both of these archetypes. Yeah. No, we definitely do. I, I, I speak in the book about two, we have two primary states of awareness. So basically the warrior is the individual. I mean, it's us as a human being caught in the details of our own mind or mm-hmm. in, or of, um, 
external circumstances and situations. Believing that by fighting, in a sense, or, yeah, yeah. or engaging in battle, we can make the world a better place. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. And, you know, when we, especially, and when we observe our own mind, when we have a lot of rigid opinions or beliefs, mm-hmm. we begin to act from that. And um, the warrior, in a sense, because they act from those, from that place, they have their own personal agenda, mm-hmm. which usually conflicts with everyone else's agenda. Mm-hmm. Now, we all have this on a deep, subtle level. The, the idea in the, um, especially the Eastern spiritual traditions is to begin to refine your consciousness and, and begin to evolve your state of perception out of that. And that's what we, we get into more of the sage's state where the sage can see the details in their own mind and in the world where they're in struggle, they're in conflict, they're in suffering, but they begin to um, refrain from believing that that's what they actually believe. So they begin to evolve their perception and see that, you know, as in Buddhism, they say that you need to cleanse your wrong perceptions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that can mean anything. That can mean if you are geared, in a sense, very nationalistically, then how does that benefit anyone else? And who's to say that you're right as opposed to someone who's mm-hmm. wrong? You know, I saw when I was in Philadelphia recently, Pope Francis, there was a quote up and he said, you know, we all have a duty to do good. And I thought, that's all well and good, but good according to who? You know, these are kind of the more deeper philosophical aspects mm-hmm. I think that we need to engage in because if it's if he's referring to good according to him or good according to Catholic Church, that's again the wrong perception of how we should see life. You suggest that there are four major traps that we fall into, identifying with our nation, with our religion, with our uh, sexual or our gender. Yep. And our race, yeah. And our race. Yeah. All so, these are sort of mm-hmm. like what I call the four um, pillars of separation. So, mm-hmm. they kind of distort our awareness of, of reality as it is. You but know. there are many ways we can separate ourselves. There I, is. I might say, you know, as a psychologist or as a parapsychologist, I'm so much better than everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can look at it that way. <laughs> well, there are moments, I suppose, when I do feel that way. But yeah. uh, fortunately, there are brief moments. I usually get reminded very quickly that uh, other people might just as easily believe I'm worse. And, and, I, and I suppose there, sometimes people overcompensate for when they're feeling persecuted. Well, they do. And, you know, and I don't want the listener to think that just because I say it as these four primary, four core pillars of separation, it doesn't mean in a sense that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. The problem is just the belief in them, the over identification in mm-hmm. them. Like, you know, you could say you're American and I'm Australian and we're okay with that. But, but what, um, if, if me being Australian was to get in the way of you and I having been having friendship mm-hmm. and this and that, I'm willing to, to let that go and let that subside. Well, when you use the word separation, yeah. you're actually, as I understand it, referring to a very deep mystical principle or esoteric principle, which is at the very core of our nature, we are one with the totality of the universe. Definitely. And that's what I refer to as a spiritual plane of consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's deep down inside Jeffrey, inside myself, um, we are the entire universe, so to speak, but we're coming on as Jeffrey and as Jason. This mm-hmm. is how we are appearing. So, below the physicality and the mental sphere, we have this deeper essence within ourselves that um, unifies us as one. And this is a pretty 
I mean, it is a common core teaching of most religions, but it's been distorted and um, I, I guess misinterpreted with a lot of mm-hmm. religions as well to to think of because um, when people think of oneness or the one, they think of um, God as a separate being or, or something like this or, or as a higher power. But we are an aspect of that. I, th- I believe that deep down we are all a part of that. And the the so-called spiritual goal for all of us is to begin to peel the layers back and to really live from that place. And, you know, a good example of that is in, in Vedanta, like the core philosophy, one of the core philosophies of Hinduism, mm-hmm. you have the idea of Atman in Sanskrit and Brahman. Mm-hmm. And, and Brahman is the absolute, the ultimate reality. Yes. And deep down within you and you and myself, we have what is Atman. And that doesn't mean um, a soul. What it means is undifferentiated consciousness. Mm-hmm. So that means that deep down within you and myself, we have this. And the Atman is the Brahman. So it's the aspect of, um, not the aspect, it's actually the totality. Mm-hmm. But we don't, most of us, because of the busyness of our lives and because of the distractions in the world, we don't really align with, with that a lot in our lives. Mm-hmm. And we're too busy, um, for example. Well, and also you suggest, though, that this understanding of the essential oneness is what engenders humility in great spiritual masters, that they yeah, can appreciate that uh, there's nothing more perfect or nothing greater than the wholeness and nothing that we can do to improve it. No. Well, it's there. It's natural. It's part of us. It's, mm-hmm. and I guess with the masters, it's, a, it's, for them, it's just a recognition of it. And, and it's a, what differs between them and us mere mortals is they have a more of a prolonged, um, state of that where we might have it only in, say, in a divine performance of art or in sport or in, say, if you're writing, you, you feel it in that moment, that, that, that sense of unity within ourself. But, how do we take it out of that sphere into 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 a prolonged state? And so, the spiritual masters, what they did was began to again refine their ref, refine their consciousness and come into what I call as the great work of eternity, beginning to be sincere with yourself and being humble to existence and bluntening sharpness, not being too opinionated, mm-hmm. understanding that um, you know in that humble place that's where enlightenment is it actually is evoked. As opposed to the warrior spirit, the warrior would look out at, at the world and maybe in the best of circumstances, the warrior would say, we have to do something about it mm-hmm. because uh, there are problems that we have to solve, pollution, uh, war, disease, poverty, and so on. And, and uh, a warrior might dedicate their life to solving these problems, but the sage would look at it differently. Well, what the sage would say is that we're going about it the wrong way because mm-hmm. he's he's saying, well, they would say, you know, to save the world, you need to save yourself first. And and they would also say that the warrior, because they're trying to solve all these problems, what state of perception got us into these problems in the first place? Mm-hmm. And it was, and they would say it's the warrior's state of perception because it's the agendas and all of this and that that goes into having ecological problems, having problems with poverty and so forth and so on. They're pretty much all man-made. All man-made, yeah. Yes. So that's that would be what they would try and teach us mm-hmm. is to um, refrain from that tendency to, to like in the Yoga Sutras, they, they say, Patanjali says, to refrain from the gravitational pull 
of that of that worry of mm-hmm. um, psychology yeah. and begin to refrain. And it doesn't mean a lot of people, especially in the world, who are who are sort of dance between spirituality and um, what do you social anarchism or, or anything like this. They kind of dance between these two ideas. Um, and they sort of say that how can that benefit us? Mm-hmm. You know, if we're not going to do anything about it, right? And you know, the sage would say that, but you haven't changed yourself first. And and the way to go about solving these problems is much more, we could say, metaphysical than it is obvious. You know? mm-hmm. mm. So you're not uh, advocating, for example, trying to do both at the same time, working on yourself and working on the world. Or actually, you're not advocating working on yourself, really, are you? <laughs> well, I'm not advocating either or the, either or the <laughs> way. It's again, whatever naturally arises with the individual. It's, mm-hmm. I mean. Um, when, like I, I mentioned in the book, when we talk about the warrior and the sage's sta- yeah. state of consciousness, um, these are both parts of the universe that mm-hmm. are essential. Um, yeah. You need to, well, for example, uh, Jeff, as yourself, Jeffrey, you need to pay the bills. You need to do this and that. Mm-hmm. These are very detailed um, activities that yeah. have to be done. But yeah. um, the sage would say, "That's great. Do them, but begin to, you know." have more of the prolonged state of the awareness that of what you're doing it's you don't need to struggle and suffer you know if you've got a bill with two thousand dollars or something like that you don't have to be all contracted you can just be in that awareness pay pay the bills and go about your life effortlessly without the the sense of suffering the other point you make is that i'm not about to achieve enlightenment by striving for it yeah well it's again like i I mentioned before it's a different Ways of thinking between, especially Western and Eastern thinking, mm-hmm. is that um, the idea of um, in the West we we seek definite interpretation. We set goals and we have a plan of action to achieve our goals, and we work our plan. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This is why I always say that the West and the East, the West see the world in nouns, and the East see it in verbs because mm-hmm. they see process where we see objects and definite interpretations and so forth and so on. But um, the focuses are, are completely different. That's why in the West you have a focus on um, categories and objects, and in the East you have a focus on relationships and context. Mm-hmm. So there's always this idea that of in- interconnectedness, of process, of you know, I'm meeting Jeff today for some mm-hmm. greater reason, maybe than, than more than what we're doing. You know, mm-hmm. so we have to. This is why when someone, for example, goes to a Zen monastery, the Zen master will say, "Well, ask cleverly, what are you doing here?" And they will say, you know, I'm here to seek enlightenment. They, they will tell you to hit the road mm-hmm. because they don't want you to strive for anything. They're trying to get you out of the striving mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you write that it, one of the biggest absurdities is thinking that we can change the world. Yeah. Well, it is one of the biggest absurdities because, you know, first of all, change it according to whom? Mm-hmm. To, to Jason Gregory, like, God, like, I don't want to change the world for, for anybody, mm-hmm. you know. Um and the idea that we, you know, can we really change the world in its totality? Like, if we if we were to do that, we would also take out the diversity and the beauty of life as well. We we wouldn't have different cultures, different nations. We would have one system, which would be more aligned with what uh, the political scientist Francis Fukuyama said, the more of the convergent model, where he believes that um, the whole world is converging because deep down he thinks we're all Western, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't agree with that at all. I think that there's mm-hmm. kind of a more of a, 
an ignorant perspective mm-hmm. of, of looking at it. Well, let me share something with you. As I was reading and pondering your passage about, you know, how, how absurd it is to think that we can change the world, I saw an interesting advertisement on, on television. It was about Steve Jobs. Yeah. There's a new movie about yep. to come out about Steve Jobs. And uh, it said, uh, only people who believe that they can change the world are going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an example. He believed he could change the world, and he did. <laughs> and that, that sort of held up now as a, uh, a role model. As a role model, yes. Yeah. Certainly. I think a lot of people th- see Steve Jobs as a, as a role model. Uh, but... Uh, there's also an interesting story about how he died uh, not long ago, and, and his very last words to his wife were, oh, wow, as if he uh, was beholding, you know, some sort of intense spiritual splendor at the moment of, of his, his death. Uh, so, how, how does that fit into the science and practice of humility? Well, it's it's interesting that you said because, um, for example, if you if you get out of the kind of the superficial context of that story of of Steve Jobs, what you see is someone. Well, what I see is someone. It's very coherent to the to the East, where mm-hmm. you see that inadvertently he's changing the world from following his what I what I call dharma. Yes, in Sanskrit, the, mm-hmm. the, um, which is translates as virtue. It's the mm-hmm. same as in Chinese the the Chinese character of de. So. Basically, what that is is someone who comes in accord to, as what Joseph Campbell would say, is following your own bliss, the Ananda. That makes you, makes Jeffrey do these interviews. It mm-hmm. makes it makes you ponder the universe. This is what makes you feel alive. Mm-hmm. And I, I, what I see, especially in the story of Steve Jobs, is he felt m- most alive in exploring computers and ways of. Um, you know, ways of uh, communicating differently with other people. Mm-hmm. And this has benefited the world um, tenfold, I believe. Mm-hmm. But I don't see that even though he might have said those things that he wanted to change the world and this and that, I yeah. think that just his actions and, and who he was and from following his dharma, his own virtue, mm-hmm. he inadvertently changed the world. And mm-hmm. and that's um, the, the idea of dharma is means in some sense that you give away your own personal will to come into accord with a, a much higher will, you know, call it the divine will, where mm-hmm. you know artists experience this, where they they have this yeah. feeling, sense of flow, and, and so the forth. Notice, the, the notion of dharma is very important in this dialogue between the sage and the warrior. I, I know it comes up in the Bhagavad Gita, the, yeah, the yeah. classic story of the warrior and the sage. It definitely. Well, this is where Krishna is is trying to tell Arjuna to go into battle against these. Um, Krishna being the, Krish- the divine being, uh, who's also a sage. Sage, yeah. And Arjuna, the warrior. The warrior, yeah. And so Arjuna is caught in the details. He's going to fight his friends, and he doesn't he, want to go into battle. Doesn't want to go into battle. So, yeah. so Krishna explains to him. You know, there's a there's a Sanskrit word uh, nishkarma karma, uh, nishkarma karma, and that means um, don't be in t- don't be attached to the fruits of your own action. So he's trying to get him to be effortless in his action to see it from a a higher distance and to follow that will that dharma what is being called upon him to to act from and Mm -hmm. instead of arjuna as the as the individual so that's i that's what the whole process of the bhagavad gita is it's sort of uh, ironic to me that the culture that gave us the philosophy of non-violence ahimsa 
that their greatest spiritual uh, treatise is one in which the sage is urging the warrior to go into battle. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's paradoxical, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. And it, it seems as if, you know, that paradox is often really at the heart of uh, esoteric uh, journeys. It is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a, that's, as we were talking about before, when we, t- when we talk about process and we talk about getting out of the sense of self, what you have to embrace also is paradox about how things are two-sided. It's not one-sided and definite. It's, you know, it's as, as one Eastern saying says, it's, you know, the universe produces consciousness and consciousness evokes the universe. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's kind of like that stillness and motion mm-hmm. are in a sense paradoxical, but the same. And, and same with the sage and the warrior. They depend on each other as well. Even the sage depends on the warrior. Mm-hmm. You know, they they have an urge to teach it and an urge to inspire. And without that, what would the world be? Right? And you equate this as well, I believe, with our masculine and feminine nature. Definitely, yeah. And this is, again, found in the East where you have the yin and yang mm-hmm. polarities, um, which, again, are the same, but um, they're just opposite ends of one pole. Um, and the masculine and feminine in, in, in esoteric knowledge is basically the masculine is the... Um, is the active, or you could you could align it to heaven, mm-hmm. as in China, and or Shiva in mm-hmm. India, and the feminine being the receptive, being the the more passive, and um, referred to as uh, earth, or in China and Shakti in India. Mm-hmm. So you have this dance between the polarities, not just on the physical plane, mm-hmm. but also on the psychological plane. Water and fire. Water and fire. As, yeah. As well, we began by talking about water and its relationship to humility and to the sage. Exactly. And that's the coming back into, that's why in the Tao Te Ching and also in, in texts like the Bhagavad Gita and that, they, they say embrace the feminine aspect of the, you know, for everybody mm-hmm. coming back into accord with the receptiveness of life. Because the, white, the reason they, they advocated more of the feminine as opposed to the masculine because the world is primarily masculine. Mm-hmm. And so what they saw was that a lot of people are out there doing this and doing that and not really from, a, from an authentic place within themselves, within their hearts. So. Well, Jason Gregory, this has been a marvelous discussion. Thank you so much for sharing with me. Thanks for being oh, Pleasure to be on, Jeff. And thank you for being with us.